welcome back. Yep, another episode. We have um, not the biggest week of boxing coming up, but it's big enough that we have decided that this is the time to bring in someone new. I want to welcome our friend Paul to the podcast. Say hi, hi, Angelo. Yeah, thank you very much for having me on. How are you doing, man? Yeah, I'm, I'm very good. It's uh, pretty snowy over in England, so trying to power through that. It's not, not California weather. Oh, I, so he's first of all, he's trying to get over the fact that he's from England. Tell, tell him where you're from specifically. They, they probably already know. All right, I'm from Southampton, which if, if you don't know, is in the south of England. Um, originally from London. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That's, that's where that posh accent comes from. And are you going to replace Simon? Well, you know, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, if, if these ratings are off the charts, then who knows? Ooh, that's a, that's he's calling you out, Simon. Simon will be be back soon. I tried to get him this week, so this is his fill in. We'll see how this goes. Yeah, I'm the replacement. I'm, right. the, I'm the Julius in Dongo for Simon. Okay. <laughs> well, let's hope you don't look as bad as Julius in Dongo because that was embarrassing. Yeah, that was a poor fight. But we'll start off with uh, the big fight this weekend, if we could call it that, was the um, the fight for the vacant WBO or WBC 140-pound title, Jose Ramirez versus Amir Imam. Now, before we get into that, I want to make a, a request of you guys who are listening to this. We have a survey. We're just trying to find out what do you guys like? What do you guys want as a listener? What could we do to improve or other things, you know, gather data so that we could sell it to, uh, what, what was the, the firm called? Cambridge Analytics or something? Yeah, yeah. we, we want to sell your data to Cambridge Analytica so we can influence elections. That's our, that's our thing at Sunday Puncher. That's exactly what's happening. So I'm going to put it in the description of this podcast um, episode. If you guys could go, it's a survey monkey. It's 10 questions. It's not long. And we can only do 100 because I'm not paying for survey monkey. So the first 100, we take your answers. And then after that, we don't take your answers. Okay. And secondly, patreon.com, sign up, become a backer. You get access to a daily podcast that recaps the day's events of boxing and the news, as well as a long form narrative based podcast that should be launching. Um, Within the next couple of days, the the edit has just been a nightmare. Um, but you don't want to hear about my troubles. You want to hear about Amiri Moms. Were you impressed with Jose Ramirez's performance? Yes, I was. I thought Ramirez boxed well. Um, he, it's clear he's got a great chin. He's got great work rate. Um, although he, he started to look a little bit one-dimensional when he was being hit off the jab. But uh, yeah, I was, overall, I was impressed with him. It's This is a tough one because... He didn't look any different from how he's looked his entire career. This has been the story on him is that he's a an aggressive guy. He comes forward. He throws punches. He has the ability to box, but he doesn't really do it. Um, he'd rather rely on cleverness in doing what he's successful at, which is being aggressive. And that's that. And it was it was the perfect style matchup for him. He got a guy who was a boxer, but a boxer who wasn't good enough to get his respect or to make him pay for his mistakes. I mean, we saw Imam land the jab throughout the fight, which was a very nice jab. But Imam has to be one of the most overrated fighters in the sport, uh, starting with uh, how he, basically how people talked about him when he was on Showtime. But I mean, did this win tell you anything about Ramirez and like how he's going to do at 140? No, I don't think so. I think 
Imam was tailor-made for him in that he was a boxer who would he would have spots where he looked good, but he was also a boxer who just could not keep Ramirez off him. And Ramirez didn't have to, you didn't, he didn't have to adapt. He didn't have to use his smarts, really. He knew he could walk forward and, and he knew he could get inside. Um, so it didn't really tell me anything new. It told me that he has good heart, told me that he's got the stamina easy for 12 rounds. But I think the fight against Progress is going to tell us a little bit more about him. Oh, I mean, we'll, we'll hold off on talking about Progress, but we got a British guy on, so let's just let it get it out of the way. Say what you want to say about Josh Taylor. Oh, well, I think Josh Taylor would beat him. I think Josh Taylor is a very, very, very good fighter. Maybe not quite ready yet for the very top level, but I, I, I would pick Josh Taylor to beat him. What about Terry Flanagan? Uh... Terry Flanagan is an interesting case because realistically, he's not for anyone of great note. Well, anyone at all, <laughs> exactly. essentially. Exactly. He could basically be 0-0 at this point. So Flanagan could win because Flanagan is a crafty guy. He's a crafty boxer, but I, I would see him being outworked by Ramirez. Not crafty with his speaking. No, definitely not. <laughs> his, his charisma is not entirely there. Neither is his grammar or vocabulary. But um, here's something that I think is kind of interesting is that you bring up Josh Taylor, you bring up Terry Flanagan. There's only one year apart between these two guys. But it seems like Flanagan, his age is older than him. I mean, he's been on the on the scene for a long time and Josh Taylor obviously has turned pro, what, a few years ago? Um, I would take Ramirez to beat Flanagan handily. I don't think Flanagan's very good. And if you look at his, his resume, what has he done to show that he's capable of beating anybody? I mean, he beat Petr- He took Peter Petrov 12 rounds. And wasn't that no, impressive doing it? I completely agree. I mean, his resume is, is bare, completely bare. I mean, he was, loser, he was facing losing fighters up until his sort of twi- in his 20s fights. And, you know, he barely got rid of Orlando Cruz, who it was shot and clearly very past it. And... You know, he fought a, an aging Derry Matthews, who, and that could probably be one of his best best wins. So, yeah, I believe Ramirez beats him handily. But Josh Taylor is a completely different beast than Terry Flanagan. Um, what do you think about the potential of Jose Ramirez fighting um, a Sergey Lipinitz? I would love that fight. I think that would be a, a really good fight to watch. I mean, we saw from Lipinitz last weekend that he, he's a, a, a better fighter than people thought. Um, you know, I thought Mikey would walk over him a lot easier than that. But he clearly he's got good chin, clearly got good power. I think he hurt Mikey a couple of times to the body. Um, and I think that would be a really fun fight for the fans. That would just be a stand-up brawl between the two. Okay, so th- we didn't prepare for this, so this might be a little messy. But I think this is a, a pretty cool thought experiment. So let's assume um, that Mikey's staying at 140. And if we were creating tiers... Of the levels of, of of guys that are at 140, and you'll probably want to bring this up on, on BoxRec or something, the list. Um, I'll send it to you so you have it in front. Um, so we can just see, like, who's in what tier? Because I think this is, like, something, um, like, it's, you think a lot of times about a division in, in terms of a top 10. But a, a normal linear list doesn't really tell the story of a division, because of the world of difference between a guy at number one and a guy at number three, and even a guy at two and a guy at four. Like if you think of welterweight, there's only a couple of spots between um, Crawford, 
who we're assuming is somewhere in the top three. And then a guy who would be at number five, which is like, what, a Sean Porter, somebody like that. There's a huge, huge difference. Now, at 140, I would say the, the, there's, the first tier would have one fighter, and that's Mikey Garcia. Fair? Yeah, completely fair. Mikey is clearly the standout at 140. And then in tier two, who would be those fighters? I think you have to put Prograis in there now after his fight. Um, you have to look at... I, I, I genuinely think Lipinets is in that tier too. I think he gave, te- I think he gave uh, Garcia a really good fight. Yeah, I would agree um, with that. Carol Relic is probably in that tier too. I'm, although the jury's still out a little bit on whether Bartholomew is actually any good. So whether that counts <laughs> as a good win. Yeah. Um, and then it's really tough where you choose between the tier two and the tier three guys. Because there's a lot of guys with a similar sort of record who we don't really know anything about them at the top level. I think you can... And Dongo is clearly no longer in that tier two bracket after that progress win. I mean, absolutely, you know, he's, he's off the board at, at 140 now for me. But there's people who... I mean, do you count Brono in it anywhere there at, at 140? Um, and, and that's the question, you know? Is Broner in the tier two? I think, I think you have to put him in the tier two on his, on his previous... I mean, would would Bro- would Broner have a close fight if not beat Relic? I think it would be a close fight. I think Relic would probably outwork him. We know Broner's flaws pretty in and out by now, but I think it would be a close fight. So I think Broner deserves a spot in the tier two, but it it's a close run thing. And, and then tier three, because and and I, I'm I'm okay with putting Progray, Lipinitz, Relic, and Broner in tier two, um, because if you look at any matchup between those four guys, is there a clear favorite? in any of those fights no i wouldn't say so i mean some people if if you're scottish you'd probably say josh taylor and all of them but at the moment we just don't know how he's going to react at the very top level so no i'd say they're all pretty close fights yeah so and and so if we're gonna we're gonna classify this give a little description tier one at 140 pounds is the elite like you are amongst the pound for pound best in the world tier two is you will you've accomplished something by scoring a win a notable win and you've proven that you could hang at the very least with the world level and that's yeah. it. And then tier three would be, you've got some, some journey or gatekeeper type of wins and you could probably hang with those guys in tier two. And I think that brings us to like Jose Ramirez. Mm. Um, I would be willing to put, um, uh, I would be willing to put Josh Taylor in that tier, that tier. I don't have any okay. problem with that. Um, Victor Postel, we're, like, where do we put him? Is he in this tier? I think Postel has to be in that tier until we see his next fight. I, I think, he considering like how good he was, yeah, he looked awful. He got dropped by a Ukrainian novice, essentially a, a prospect, um, in a fight he was clearly supposed to win, uh, and has obviously now suffered some injuries that put him out of the uh, progress fight. I, but I think you have to put him there on history. Until we see what he looks like at this very moment, you kind of have to keep him there on how good he was before the Crawford fight. But that was still on a very weak resume. So I'd put him in the tier three. Um, I mean, there's a there's a point where the Troyanovsky is even in tier three anymore. I mean, getting iced by Ndongo doesn't look good on your resume. Yeah, I, I would... I don't know if I would put him here, but I would put Eve Ulysses Jr. Yeah, I would, de- I would definitely agree with that. Um, where, where does uh, a guy like Ivan Baranchik go? Is he in the next tier of like, you're good but unproven? 
Yeah, Baracic has to be in, you know, you look good, you kind of pass in the eye test. You know, he, he KO'd Petrov in his last fight, but you're not quite there. You haven't fought a name that really puts you on a standout yet. Would would Julius Ndongo go, be in this? Because obviously he doesn't fit the description that we just went of like, you know, you're, you had the potential to be good, but you haven't proven it yet. But does Ndongo go with this group? I think Ndongo's a tough one because he so very clearly has a ceiling and that ceiling is if he meets a good boxer, he's in trouble and that's that. But, you know, we saw what he did to Trinovsky. He clearly has some power. He's very, very awkward and a bit of a nightmare for someone coming up to fight. So he probably goes more in, you know, if, if, you'll, if you'll let a little sort of side category of gatekeepers, he probably starts to go in there. I mean, I would put Ndongo in the next tier. So, because we have, at this point, we have one, two, three, four, five tiers. Mm. And and then, if you think about it, like, how far up can you see this guy going? Like, I don't I don't see Ndongo winning anything above his tier. I, I can see the Baron Chicks of the world getting to tier, getting a win in tier three, but that's it. And, like, if you really think about boxing in this, in this case, um, a lot of matchups make sense this way. Because you never want to see a tier one guy fighting anything below tier two. But you can no, still be rated in the top 10 and be t- tier four. I mean, it, it's. I, I think this is just a better way to, to, to rank fighters. And maybe we'll do something, a, a separate podcast where we really go through each division and rank them in tiers. And, you know, rank the top 25 or so boxers based on what tier they would be. I mean, you, you look at a guy like Bartholomew. This guy's in the same tiers as Dongo of like, they they look like they're talented but aren't actually that good. Yeah, and I th- yeah, Bartholomew is he's a tough one to rank because he looked so good and then has promised you know he's he's done so little. He for me he he lost against Relic the first time really, and obviously clearly lost the second time. And it his is a really just disappointing story of someone who you thought was going to be very good and has just turned out not to be. Yeah, and I mean we could. Uh, well, that's actually an ep- another episode. He he already got his chance to to be talked about, but um, yeah. yeah, but not not a very uncommon conversation when we're talking about Cuban fighters. Um, what's Jose Ramirez's ceiling? Do you think? I think Ramirez's ceiling. I think he can get into tier two. I think if he boxes well, if he actually uses his you know his brain, he's an Olympian. We know he can box. If he actually does that in his next few fights, I think his ceiling is the lower end of that tier two. I don't think he's going to ever break into that elite Mikey Garcia role. You know, that's just not going to happen. But I think, you know, if he's if he moves and takes what happens in each fight properly and he learns from it all, you know, I could see him moving into that tier two. I could see him beating someone like Relic. Yeah, I, I could definitely see Ramirez beating Relic. I mean, that Relic, Relic pro-great Lipinitz... And Ramirez, any combination of those guys, any combination will work. That's fireworks, mm. guaranteed. And um, I think Ramirez has a shot in every single one of those fights. Uh, I'd love. I-, I think some people will will reject that because Progre has knocked guys out. So obviously that means that Progre is much better than these other guys. But um, and I, I I'm a big fan of Progre. I think he's got a bright future. But I'm not going to go so far as to say that Progre is clearly the man at 140 or at least amongst these guys because Progre really hasn't shown what happens when somebody can take his power. And the natural counter to that is 
well, so far, nobody can take his power. Yeah, I think with Prograis, it's another one of these prospects who clearly looks incredibly good coming up and has and has had a few fights against people who've you know never been stopped or people he was supposed to struggle against and has looked amazing doing it but we just haven't seen him in there with that top guy so you really you just can't you know put everything down on the line with him until you see what he's going to look like against the guy who's going to take his power and throw power back at, at this point i would say that the only way that that happens is if he fights Lipinitz. Lipinitz is yeah. the only guy I think at the, in the division right now that that can you can use the data from that fight to quantify how good he is because Ramirez beat Imam but Imam basically looked like a prospect that washed out Relic we don't know how good Bartholomew is Lipinitz or sorry Progre you just kind of went over why Progre's not would it be the best to 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 gauge Ramirez a skill and then Broner I I think Broner would work but the style doesn't really match up no Broner, I agree I, th I mean I think Ramirez would probably outwork Broner at this point we know what Broner's flaws are we know he doesn't throw enough punches around we know his work rate's a bit lax he likes to sit on the ropes and I think you know that's tailor-made for Ramirez but I don't think it would tell us much about Ramirez yeah you can't you, like if, if Ramirez had got a win over Broner that wouldn't lead you to believe that he would have any success against success against Mikey Garcia. Now, naturally, no. given how good Garcia is, that doesn't mean, or I mean, you might still come to the same conclusion. But I, I don't like I, I. I'm just unsure right now what to think of Ramirez because Imam has proven that he just wasn't very good to to start. There are aspects of Imam, and 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 that's the thing with with the guy like Imam is they, they lose and, and it's hard to count them out because they have skills that are just so good. Imam's jab is, is fantastic. It's quick, it's long, but then you look at his defense and his inability to keep uh, fighters from getting inside on him, and he, which basically if, if a guy gets inside on Imam, then you know all of, his, all of his athletic gifts and the physical gifts go away. Yeah, he folds. Once you get inside on him and he loses that jab, he seems to lose his fight IQ. When he, when he was boxing on the outside, he looked, you know, relatively smart and things like that. But as soon as Ramirez got inside, he just lost it. I mean, there was a point, I think, round seven and eight, he started inside fighting with Ramirez purposefully. And yeah, that's just stupid. I mean, I, in, from from our vantage point, it is stupid, but I'll give him credit because I think it was the right thing to do at that point. Whatever, because everything else wasn't working, and it's really and, and look, I, I'll give credit to Imam and his trainer because Imam did seem to execute the game plan and and implement the adjustments. It's just that he wasn't that good. But going inside, it's this is one of those things where it's like, oh, how come the fighter doesn't sell out? How come they don't do this? Well, they're only used to one way of fighting, and you know it's kind of scary when you start changing things up on the biggest stage of your career. But Imam went in there and tried something different, and I give him credit for it because that's not his style. It's clearly not his style. He went in there to bang on the inside, thinking maybe this might be the way, and you know, obviously it didn't work out. He lost the fight. But it's it, it, in some ways it's a moral victory, and obviously moral victories don't get titles. So like you know, it's one of those like good for you, but like so what. And I, I just thought that, like, he does deserve some, some credit for doing that. You don't see too many fighters do that. 
Yeah, I completely agree. You know, when they're being taken so far out of their comfort zone and instead of, you know, just kind of folding, he he went to do something else. But I think that's also a big question on Ramirez is if that happens to him, does he have a plan B? Do you or know is who he trains just gonna, uh, who, who does train Ramirez? I've forgotten since, since Saturday. Uh, just take a guess. I asked you that question. So you were saying if he gets pushed, will he try a plan B? And I said, do you know who trains him? Who must be training oh, him? It's, uh, it's Freddie Roach, isn't it? Yeah, so what is, your, what is the answer yeah. to that question? Uh, the answer would be no. <laughs> and, and look, Freddie, Freddie Roach, Hall of Fame trainer, trainer of the year, like eight times in a row or whatever it was. But just the, 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 the plan B just usually isn't there. Throwing more combinations offers no access to a fighter to uh, provide a different wrinkle into the, into the fight which will help them win around and thus the fight or turn things around. I mean, I'll never forget in uh, the Calzaghe versus Hopkins fight where Hopkins is understandably down because his work rate is very little and Joe Calzaghe uh, threw like 100 punches around and Roach's advice to Hopkins was throw more combinations. It's like, uh, yeah. you know that's not Hopkins' style, right? Like you should tell him throw more headbutts, something he actually <laughs> does. Yeah, and, you know, saying that against a guy like Calzaghe, throw some more combinations, I mean, that's just not going to work anyway. Calzaghe's still going to throw a million punches around and outland you. So we know that Freddie Roach, he's a great trainer if his fighter is, do, is essentially has the style to, to match. But if that style starts to fade, he's not going to say to Ramirez, look, I think you need to start boxing on the back foot. You need to start, you know, pumping the jab a bit more and looking for that. No, I mean, at every corner in that fight, he was just saying, get inside. You're hurting him. Hit him to the body. The exact same stuff we've heard a hundred times. Yep. And I do want to say that in, in, in this situation, he does have the perfect fighter for his style of training. I mean, these guys are, are a really good pair. Oh, yeah, Absolutely. Uh, moving on, Alexander Fosdick on the undercard fought Mehdi Amar in what was a unanimous decision win. I was entirely disappointed by Vosdick, and I didn't think he was that good to begin with. I really, like, I have been adamant that he gets in there with the Sergei Kovalev and he will get stopped. Dimitri Bivol, stopped, okay? Uh, Adonis Stevenson, stopped. But this time was even more disappointing and my question to you is, you get to tell me whether or not the fact that I was disappointed in Vosdick was that a function of Amar being better than anyone gave him credit for, or was Vosdick really just not that good? I think Vosdick just had a poor fight, didn't he? I mean, he, he didn't look good. He didn't look this sort of hyped beast from, from the East type, Lomachenko's stablemate <laughs> that he'd been built up to be. Um but at the same time, fighters like Amar are a nightmare. I mean, he's a bit like Chilemba in that he's a horrible southpaw fighter to face. And he kind of makes anyone look bad. But if you're a class fighter, you can kind of get through that. Clearly, Gvozdik couldn't. And Gvozdik just looked very poor. I, I thought Amar had a brilliant game plan. Um, I'd never seen him fight before. And um, the guy was, he was actually a really um, I think Jim Lampley has used this phrase before where he says something about he's got the, the, the nerve of a thief or the courage of a thief or something. Basically, Amar, um, like, he's in there with this guy who's hyped up to have good, like, excellent knockout power. And Amar just stood in the pocket and said, 
try to come in. If you throw punches, I will land on you, and I'm going to throw hard. But Amar had no punching power, so it really didn't do it, do anything other than make Vosdick's right eye swell up. But like he's, he was able to stand there and just just drill Vosdick over and over again with either jabs, wide looping hooks, and and it made for a really close fight. It was a, de- a decent fight as far as entertainment goes, but I thought Vosdick was just working in slow motion, had nothing in his shots, hit Amor with like power shots and nothing. And I find it hard to believe that Amor's chin is that good. I mean, they were talking about how he has a, a regular job. I don't remember what it was, but he has like a regular job that he goes to. Yeah, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, they mentioned it a couple of times that, you know, boxing is a sort of side profession for him. And you'd think, you know, if you're Gvodzdik and you're everything you're cracked up to be, you have to be getting those people out of there. Um, Yeah, he might have a good chin. He's been KO'd before, you know, he's, you know, it's not unbreakable. You've got to be getting him out there. And he was KO'd, I think, against uh, Najib Mohammadi, who um, I think if you remember Gvodzdik and Kovalev have both ironed out in a few rounds. Um, but yeah, the, the problem I had with Gvodstick was he just showed absolutely no imagination. It was the same combo every time. It was the same shot every time. And the shot that hurts you is the one you don't see. And he was seeing every single one of Gvodstick's shots because he knew exactly what was going to come at him. And nothing ever changed the whole fight. And if, if as you said, Amar was catching him clean, he was catching him with counter left hooks, almost every combination. If he had a bit more power, I think Gvodstick's in a lot of trouble. Oh, absolutely. I completely agree with that. If he had some more power, I think Vazdik might have gotten knocked out. He was getting hit with shots that were that clean. And and the the other side of that, uh, I don't want it to sound like, you know, we're just always agreeing with each other or not providing the other side of things. But the other side of that is that maybe Vazdik didn't care to get hit because the guy didn't punch hard. And I think that that's nonsense because nobody likes to get hit in the face. Oh, the classic Gennady Golovkin makes people hit him so that the fight's more exciting argument. Exactly. Um, no, no fighter likes to get hit in the face. Let's be honest. No human likes to actually be hit in the face. Gvozdik wasn't... He, I think you maybe relax your defense a little more when you're against a guy who you feel can't hurt you, but not to the amount he was getting tagged. He was getting tagged regularly and hard every round. And for me, his defense just isn't quite there. I think at the, stop, the top level... He's going to get knocked out. Yeah, I, I'm with you on that one. I think at this point, everybody who's at the who's in contention for a title at 175 pounds is going to beat Vazdik. And that's from Sergey Kovalev, Dimitri Bivol, Sullivan Barrera, Badu Jack, Adonis Stevenson, Marcus Brown. All of these guys, I have, I think, have very little trouble with Vazdik. And I and I'm not high on Betterbiev at all, but I think Betterbiev will beat him too. He will not box him, but I think if the defense is as bad and a guy punches as hard as Betterbiev does, he's going to get knocked out. No, I think I think I'm a little I'm a little more unsure about how the Betterbiev fight goes because Betterbiev did not look good in his last fight. Um, saying that he was against a guy who was just looking to survive, but he has no head movement to speak of. And Gvozdik is clearly well schooled. He's clearly skilled. You know, much as he did look, you know, awful, at least he ha- he has the skills. And if he can make Baturbiev miss, and if he tightens up his defense, then I I would slightly prefer him in the fight. But you know, if he boxes anything like that, yeah, he gets sparked very quickly in that fight. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Um, so we were we were having this discussion before we started recording, 
And uh, we're talking about, I was talking about, I was listening to this podcast on politics. Now we're not going to discuss politics, just kind of a point that they brought up. And it basically was like, the more you study politics and the more you learn about the whole political world and landscape, the more you settle in on your point of view. And I thought that was kind of weird because if you're somebody who's like studying politics, like our friend Paul here, and um, wouldn't that make you more objective or wouldn't that be the goal to become more objective about politics since, you know, you're trying to be a political scientist and scientists typically are objective and seek the truth or something. And then we applied this to boxing. Are the biggest fanboys the people who follow boxing the closest? Because that would fly in the face of what we what we know. We, we think of casuals as the bigger fanboys. Where do you stand on this? I, I kind of agree with it. I think the more you get into boxing and the more you, you feel you know about it, not necessarily whether you're, you're right or not, the more you become much more set in your thoughts, the much more you think. And you see it very much in the scoring of fights as well, of how I'm so certain that I'm right in my scoring. Therefore, my guy won. That was a robbery. Even though... 90% of people go, oh, that was a close fight, actually. That could have gone either way. You're so set in what you think is right that you believe, no, that person won. And, yeah, I think it happens to everyone. People say, oh, the casuals, they're the sort of fanboys. They're the ones who jump on the bus. They don't actually know anything about boxing. And they know surface amounts. But they, they're not set in their views as people who, who kind of study the sport, in a sense. Like, well, like us. Right, and... the. I don't want to speak for everybody, so I, I'm not going to agree or disagree with the statement, but I'm just going to look for myself. And there's, you know, there's obviously a part of like not wanting to admit if you're a fanboy or not, or that you're biased, because obviously most of us who follow boxing closely, and if you're in a boxing chat, like both of us are, you, you hold yourself up to a higher standard, at least as a boxing fan, because, you know, you waste numerous hours of the day talking trash to each other about boxing. And um, I was just looking, you know, and, and the easiest place to look is how did you score Golovkin Canelo? How much did of your preconceived bias went, went into play here? And see, for me, I, I'm, I, I think I'm pretty good at being objective, like stripping things away. And, and I think that's, that's not exclusive to boxing. I think I can do that in a lot of other things. And it just is the nature of the work that um, I do that I have to be objective but there's a part of me that thinks that I, I like I can't conceivably get to this conversation that Golovkin completely outscored or outboxed Canelo. If I was being really honest, I would probably come into the fact that Golovkin's fans annoy me. Not all of you guys. If you listen to this podcast, I like you. But, you know, the ones that don't listen to this podcast, I don't like you guys too much sometimes. And so, you know, I, I think... There's a part of it that is true, that maybe th that is the case. And as somebody who doesn't get annoyed by Canelo's fans, I know lots of Canelo fans. I like them. Um, I don't. I don't mind that conversation that Canelo conceivably won the fight, if not earned that draw. And, and so, you know, it's it's a really interesting conversation, though. And and I think it's it's a hard one to to really hammer down, I guess. I, I'm not sure if it's true or not as, as an overarching statement that applies to boxing, but definitely it's, it's a conversation worth having.
No, I completely agree. Um, I think another one of sort of boxing's, not necessarily flaws, but a huge part of boxing is is its subjectiveness. It's how I saw it compared to how you saw it. And if you're set in your ways, you know, you believe that how you're seeing it is right. Um, yeah, I, I have a hard time seeing, you know, I can, I can, having watched the fight again, see where the people are coming from when they say, look, Golovkin clearly won. It was an apt, you know, he clearly outboxed him here, here and here. Great. You can kind of see where they're coming from objectively. But my own personal bias at the same time says, well, that's just not true. And, you know, I feel I'm right in saying like, oh, OK, you know, maybe that's a bit ridiculous that they've said that. But yeah, it is so hard to pin down whether that's even true. You know, you can't really get statistics on human thought. So it, it's an, another subjective point of boxing. I would disagree with that because you can definitely get um, human thought profiles and then sell it with the intention of winning a, uh, an election. Well, that's that's a whole nother story, absolutely. <laughs> um, do do you feel like maybe you're more biased in one way or the other towards British boxing because you are a lot closer to it, whether in the regard that you think these guys are actually better than they really are, or you go the other way and you really don't think they're good because you know you're surrounded by it. Um, I would I'd say a bit of both. I think there's definitely been fighters come up where I've been absolutely sold on the hype train and then they've been awful. Um, I think probably one of my worst ever boxing picks was picking Anthony Crawler to beat Jorge Linares. Oh, uh, Jesus. I, yeah, I, I don't want to talk about that one. That was, uh, that was not ideal. But then at the same time, you also see hyped up prospects come through and, you know, Sky are going off after them and you see you watch interviews with them and you just know that they are trash. Right. But everyone else, you see everything on Twitter. This guy's going to be a star. This guy's going to be great. But you kind of just think, no, you are not going to be very good. It's pretty obvious to see. And yeah, I think there is always going to be maybe a little bit of favoritism in the country you're in just because, you know, I'm exposed to it a lot more than other people. So I might get a bit more on the hype train of some people because, you know, I've seen his Twitter and, you know, I see him doing this and always oh, a nice guy. Someone said he was in a gym with him and you know, he helped him spar or something like that. And those sort of personal anecdotes can influence you a lot more than than just seeing a news article about a fighter. Yeah, I mean, th this is just something that I was thinking about. And, and I like this conversation because I... I I really, really take it serious in, in trying to do as best as I can to be objective about the sport. Um, mm. Mostly, you know, I, I do this podcast every week, so I don't want to have a like a point of view that only one side of fans could could really side with because that would kind of hurt. Um, well, no, because, you know, people do want, and you see this, like, I, I'm sure you could definitely corroborate this, um, but... People want an echo chamber. They want and they seek out the media that lines up closely with their point of view. But I think there's also another side where people actually really reflect the, not reflect, but people really appreciate um, when they can get both sides of the story in order to, um, well, in some cases know both sides, but in other cases to find out what the other argument is so that they can further strengthen their argument. But that's a that's a whole other topic we should probably just veer off from, and we could talk about Floyd Mayweather, <laughs> yeah. uh, another polarizing topic. So he's applying for an MMA license, and then there was a news earlier this week that he was um, going to begin MMA training, and uh, 
bring in UFC welterweight champion Tyron Woodley to help him train, I guess. Mm. Now, how, how closely do you follow UFC? Uh, not that closely. Uh, definitely not as close as I follow boxing. Um, I'll tune in occasionally for sort of British cards and things like that. And if there's a really big uh, UFC night, then I'll, I'll probably watch that, sort of double screen it with some boxing. But in terms of Floyd going there, I think I've actually written down something about it. Uh, I've got one point. It just says, um, I don't care. Oh, yeah. That, yeah, that's it. Um, I just, you know, what's the point? I, I don't care about Floyd going the UFC. He's a boxer going to UFC. McGregor was a, a UFC fighter coming to boxing. We know who wins in both sides. I, you know, I, if he wants to make money and people want to watch him, fine. That's absolutely fine. But I, I really have no opinion on Floyd going in the octagon. I think if he fights, it seems like he's going to, he could possibly fight some sort of very low ranked people to start with. And all right, fine. He might sort of look okay against them. But he's never going to look good on the floor. He's, in relative speaking, old. He's an old man in, in terms of combat sport. I just, you know, I, I really don't care about Floyd going into the octagon. Okay, so while you said you don't care, I don't care that you said that, we're going to entertain this conversation. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to do that. <laughs> so here's, I'm wondering, is there more money in going straight for the McGregor fight or have him beat up some low-ranked guy to build the hype and build a, like there's a reputability or something close to that word that Floyd can fight in the UFC and therefore because with um with McGregor coming over to boxing there was a precedent that he had set in his MMA fights that said this guy has hands and he's mm. got power whereas in coming over from the UFC, there's nothing about boxing that says you can transition well to MMA because boxing is only a percentage of what MMA fights entail. And so um, you can as easily, uh, well, I guess what I'm trying to say is you can as easily project success from boxing over to MMA. Now, obviously, we both know, and you listening, you also know that a guy transitioning over from one sport into another, doesn't matter what the two sports are, is usually not going to have any success. There's no two ways about that. But this th this doesn't apply here because this is a circus. And I I, I really, I don't see why, how Floyd, because Floyd is super calculated. He doesn't do, he doesn't like to do things where success isn't insured. And I'm wondering like, are they about to fix something? Is this about to be some nonsense where Floyd beats McGregor? Like Floyd makes McGregor tap or something and McGregor just gets, you know, a $50 million payday? I mean, I could see that happening because Floyd is not going to take a fight that he thinks he doesn't have a very, very good chance of winning in. I mean, we've seen that throughout his career. It's not a slight on him. He's just a very sensible businessman. And going into the UFC... Um, I mean, going against Conor McGregor in the octagon, he's, I mean, he's not going to win. It's as simple as that. Everyone knows that. But I just don't understand where he profits from it. I mean, uh, if he goes in, yeah, he'll make a ton of cash. But if he gets beaten up, what does that do for his image? So, you know, why, why would he do it? I think you have to ask yourself sort of objective questions. Why would he go into the octagon? Okay, money. Right, but he's, he's always wanted to win. How does he win if he goes into the octagon? Well... He can outstrike McGregor, okay, yeah, but there's a lot more to UFC than that. 
And as soon as he hits the floor, he's lost. Right. So, yeah, if there was something in it that could enable him to come out with his, you know, pride intact and an, and a hundred mil check, maybe he'd do it. Okay. Here, here's one more question on this is, do you think the damage Mayweather would take to his brand in a loss would outweigh the um, potential money that he could make? So what I'm trying to say is like, obviously Mayweather's brand works because of the fact that he retired with a perfect record and Floyd's encountered very little, tr uh, anything other than excellence in his performances in the ring. Now, if he were to go to the UFC and damage that, is the, you know, potentially $400, $500 million he would make from that, would that be worth it? Um, well, in a sense, yes, I guess. I think, you know, if he fights McGregor, it would be his last ever fight of anything. Um, does he want $400 million in the bank for getting beat up for a few minutes? Possibly. He's always had huge pride. You know, he takes huge pride in his O. Would it being a different sport make a difference? No, I don't think so. And I, going back to your point where would he go straight into the McGregor fight? I think he'd have to because the last thing he needs is to go in against some UFC bum who somehow gets him down and chokes him out. I mean, you know, that happens. That's a nightmare for everyone involved. Yep. So I think he has to go straight for the McGregor fight if he's going to go into the UFC. And... Does he, does he, you know, get beaten up for 400 million? Possibly. I mean, would you? Well, yeah, would any normal human? But Floyd has enough money already. Okay, so let's, I, I, I hate that we're going to go further into this, but like, let's just kind of um, tease this out a little bit, okay, to make it apply to one of us. So may, how much do you think Floyd makes a year? It's got to be like 100 million, right? I mean, it's got to be up there. He has, he's he's earned enough money that if he's invested it even half sensibly, he's still making huge amounts. And that doesn't include all of his deals and things like that. So yeah, he's got to be making upwards of 50 mil a year. Okay. So now for an, an, the average person, the average person makes like what, 40,000 a year or something like that. Let's just say it's yeah. 40,000. You may make more or less. I, my apologies. Let's just say you make 40 though. And... um would you get destroyed on public TV with all of your friends and family watching for that amount? For what? Several hundred million? No, 40,000. Probably not. How much more would you have to get paid? Would you do it for, so four times three is 120,000. Would you get beat up on TV for 120,000? What I'm doing is I'm creating a ratio of what mm. would justify the humiliation and the damage to your brand, should you have one, Paul, we know you have a very strong one, but for the Absolutely. average person, they may not. But like, so I'm trying to like map that onto Floyd. What would be the ratio that Floyd would take and does it apply to us? But in doing so, you kind of have to calculate what the damage to his brand would have been. You know, we say it for us and right. we say, oh, would it damage our brand? No, no one gives, you know, no one gives a shit about us. But yeah, with Floyd, he's built his whole his whole life around his zero. If you think about it, his whole the later half of his entire career was built around you know that perfect record. He makes yep. money, yet he still yep. wins. How much damage does that take? See that I, I think that's that's the question here, 
And I think there's a sweet spot. And, and I say this, you know, the, the million dollar man had it right. Everyone's got a price. Like you, um, <laughs> so you, I'm, I'm assuming, what, you, do you have a girlfriend? I think you've said you have a girlfriend, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So how much would I have to pay you to kiss a guy in front of her? <laughs> would you do it for a hundred bucks? I mean, probably a little more than that. Would you do it for 110? Oh, see, see, now you're putting a ratio on it. What about my brand? Yeah, because you, you have a girlfriend. So, you know, you have a brand as like whatever she thinks you are. But how would, would you kiss a guy for 200 bucks? Mm, probably not, because realistically, and this is something that Floyd is probably thinking about, is it going to affect your happiness in the long run as well? Would you because do it for a thousand? Know, are you going to keep asking me till I say yes? Yeah, because you have a price. Everyone has a price. That's but the we point. just don't know what Floyd's is. And 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 are, are we sure that like cuz I think if you believe that he's actually going to make the fight, the price has to have been hit. Yeah, but I, does the UFC even generate the revenue that is needed for that amount? That's a whole other podcast and the answer is no. But this <laughs> fight will on pay-per-view and you got to remember Floyd's got brilliant business people behind the scenes who help him cash these large, large, large checks. So um, this is, we could talk about this some other time. Yeah. But for sure, this is definitely like a fascinating conversation of like, I mean, I really think what you're paying for or it's like, what is his, what is your price to get publicly humiliated and beat up? Yeah. Well, we knew what Conor McGregor's was for, <laughs> from that side. 15, 20 million. Yeah, and I mean, I think most people in the world would do it for that. Um, but would yeah, let's, let's move on. Let's move on. Okay, so Spike O'Sullivan, he says that he's fighting Canelo next, no matter what happens in the Golovkin fight, win or lose for, for Canelo. Do you think there's anything malicious or deceptive going on given Golden Boy, or given that this has slipped, and do you think that possibly um, this is no longer going to happen because he let it slip? Yeah, I think I think there's a possibility that it doesn't happen now that he's let it slip. Um, I think, from a fan's perspective, if you if I sort of put aside any business thoughts or anything like that, I don't like that. I don't like, you know, them lining up a guy, win or lose. He's a home fighter as well. You know, they make double the cut, whatever on their percentages. You know, it. I don't like that. I want to see Canelo fight the best, and it's pretty clear that at 160, Spike O'Sullivan isn't in the you know the world beating bracket, is he? Oh, that Antoine Douglas win didn't impress you, did it? No, because Antoine Douglas is Antoine Douglas. But I, I'm. It leaves a little bit of a taste in the mouth that you know they've just immediately lined up Spike O'Sullivan. Um, I, I'd probably watch the fight. <laughs> But I, I, I wouldn't be happy if that was next for Canelo, especially if he wins. Well, do you, so you said, you know, you want to see the best fight the best, right? Well, this kind of destroys that narrative, first of all, that Golden Boy is committed to the best fighting the best. And secondly, why would they have the opponent lined up at this point? And second, or well, this is probably the third thing. And the third thing is, um, this isn't what people want. People, if Canelo beats Golovkin, people... I understandably, I would be okay with a softer fight. But I think what people are actually committed to is that Canelo continues to challenge himself. That means Danny Jacobs is next. That means Billy Joe Saunders. That means Jamal Charlo. That means one mm. of these guys. 
Yeah. Somebody in the top 10. Like what what tier is Spike O'Sullivan in? And like how acceptable is it for a guy in tier one to fight someone who's in tier four or five? I don't think it's acceptable at all. No, I completely agree. I mean, I'd put Spike O'Sullivan below David Lemieux in terms of tiers. Like that's how far down we're going. Jesus. Um, yeah, I know. This is strong stuff. But yeah, that's that's what I find the worst thing about it is he said, you know, obviously we have to take what he says with a little bit of a pinch of salt, but lined up regardless of the result. And if Canelo wins, okay, he's going to have all the belts except WBO, which Billy Joe Saunders has. Like, we want to see Undisputed, don't we? We want to see him against Jacobs. We want to see him against Charlo. We don't want to see him against Spike O'Sullivan. And, you know, from from all reports, Spike O'Sullivan's a great guy. And, you know, yeah, he's given his life to boxing, deserves a big payday. But, you know, it's not necessarily about that. It's about the best fighting the best, as Golden Boys say, that they always promote, which they're clearly not doing. So I, I strongly disagree with it from a, a Golden Boys perspective. I think it's pretty poor from them. Um, maybe they're they're gonna use this as a measuring tool to see if Canelo's ready for Billy Joe Saunders. Maybe. I mean, Spike O'Sullivan fights nothing like Billy Joe Saunders, though. That's the problem. Yeah, but he he did fight Billy Joe Saunders, you know. Yeah, he did. You know, a couple of years ago, and got beaten up doing so. But Spike O'Sullivan, he comes forwards, he throws power punches, he has non-existent defense. He got outboxed by Chris Eubank Jr. For God's sake. I mean, it's a nothing fight for Canelo. Canelo whoops him easily. I, I just, it's very disappointing to see them putting one of the biggest stars in boxing in a nothing fight. Yeah, that that is the exact thing that I would say is like this is just a pretty weak fight there's no two ways about it and you can't there's no realistic way you could sell o'sullivan he's got some cool highlights but you cannot sell him as a guy that's ready to fight canelo i mean it's just ridiculous and i i'm not trying to be critical of of canelo i'm sure he has no say in this matter this is all golden boys doing and I understand protecting your investment. And if he if he wins against Golovkin, he does deserve an easy fight, sure. But fool us a little bit, okay? Don't give us some guy that is clearly uh, a journeyman. He's I would say he's in the middle of journeyman and gatekeeper, wouldn't you say? Yeah, yeah. He's on that sort of middle line where he's he's better than a journeyman. He can beat up a prospect who's who's a bit green, but. You know, if if you're gonna win anything at 160, you're gonna you're gonna beat him up. Would you um, stay up for this? I mean, you'd have to hope if Canelo versus O'Sullivan is the main event, that the undercard better be bloody good. Otherwise, what are Golden Boy doing? What I mean, um, is that how Golden Boy typically rolls? Well, no, not at all. But Has I'm, any I'm just saying, from boxing, a- set a precedent for this. <laughs> from a from a fan's point of view, if there's a terrible main event, you'd hope there's at least something underneath it. I, I would imagine I'd probably stay up because I'm a moron and I, you know, <laughs> I watch boxing at ridiculous times from America. Um, but yeah, I I I wouldn't tell people to go watch it. You know, if if Canelo and Glovkin's on, I'm telling my friends who aren't that into boxing, you know, maybe stay up for this fight. Like this is going to be a good fight. Am I telling anyone that fight's even happening? No. <laughs> Uh, and the the sad part is that's that's a pay per view fight here in America. Yeah, and would are you paying for that? Would you pay for that fight? I mean, I pay for everything. Yeah, but if if you weren't a boxing moron, would you pay for that fight? <laughs> the new scientific term we've uh, created today, boxing yeah. <laughs> moron. Um, uh, no, probably not. 
let's move on before we uh, just feel any worse about ourselves. Is Carl Frampton a hypocrite? Because he accused Scott Quigg of not being professional because he missed weight against Oscar Valdez. Yes. I mean, Frampton literally missed weight two fights ago. And say what you will about Scott Quigg, this, he needed that world title. Because without it, he is not a draw. He's not a draw in England. And he's never going to get the rematch with Frampton, which is what he's been going for this whole time. I mean, Frampton couldn't weigh in against Horacio Garcia. He didn't make weight for that. An absolutely nothing fight in Belfast. You know, he had nothing to gain from it. And that is lazy not making weight there because he said, oh, it doesn't really matter if I don't make weight for this fight. That's unprofessional. There are rumors and there are stories about whether Quig had a fractured foot during camps so who couldn't do the road work. But I don't think Scott Quigg goes into that fight to maliciously not be on weight. I think he just couldn't shift the weight in time, whether that's, you know, nutritionist fault or whatever. I don't think he did it purposefully. Whereas Fra- Frampton coming out and saying that, it, I think is very hypocritical from him, considering he's literally just failed weight in his last fight. I mean, yes, true. I'm going to double down on it and say that Frampton has no business talking about missing weight because this is a guy who Frampton is a small guy. He's very small. Mm, yeah. I stood next to him. He's a, he's, a, he's a little guy. Okay. But he's struggled to make weight for years. Yeah. He had to move up from 122. I mean, Frampton was pretty dominant at 122, and he had to move up and wait to go to 126 because he can't make weight. And I don't know if it's because he's having too many paints. I don't know if he's uh, just not that committed, but it, it really seems like Frampton has no business talking about anybody missing weight. And I'm, I like Frampton. I like watching him fight. Um, I definitely think he has taken a, a big step back, and I'm hoping that's ring rust, but his last fight was not pretty. And, um, you know, Quig, Quig, Quig has never had a history of missing weight. And I would buy the story about him being injured in camp. But the way he, based off of the stamina he displayed, the, 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 the way he was able to throw punches for 12 rounds, I find it hard to believe that um, he didn't have, he wasn't able to do the road work. Because that looks like a guy that was doing road work or something. Because that would, I don't know. Didn't look like he um, wasn't didn't do put in the road work because he went twelve and did it well. Yeah, well, I think one of the things that's always been known about Scott Quigg is he is an absolute gym rat. I mean, he has no life outside boxing. You know, it is everything to him, and that's why sort of after the Frampton fight, he was so devastated because it, it means literally everything to him. And even in the build up to that fight, Frampton was saying, you know, what are you going to do if you lose? You have nothing else, all this sort of stuff. Which is why I was so shocked that he dick move. he missed weight. Yeah, which, you know, isn't isn't a, a horribly nice thing to say and build up, but, you know, when when do they ever compliment each other? But no, I completely agree. Frampton, Frampton's three inches shorter than Quig, and they fought at the same division for years, and Frampton still struggled to make weight there. So I think it's pretty poor from him, and, you know, I'm hoping that his last, you know, he lost to Santa Cruz in the fight before the, the, uh, the Garcia one pretty handily, then looked absolute trash against Garcia. I'm hoping that this isn't, him hitting the decline and i you know he, he's had trouble with management um so hopefully that's something to do with it and hopefully he can kind of shut up about other boxes and actually put on a good performance against an Ooh, ooh, look at that that's some heat right there wow Go, going in on carl frampton okay well so 
we're going to move on to preview uh, three fights from, from this upcoming weekend. Um, unless I'm wrong, there's really just not much going on this upcoming weekend, which is a bit disappointing, um, mm. especially because we have the big Anthony Joshua fight coming up next weekend. I mean, I'm so excited for it. Are you? Yeah, I'm, I'm going, so I'm, I'm very excited. Oh, wow, you're, you're going? Excited. How much were yeah, the tickets? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. My brother got them for me for my birthday, so I, oh. I won't ask. Okay, that's adorable. Um, <laughs> wow, you're going to be there live. Wait, wait, but the fight is in Wales. Cardiff, yeah, yeah, it's in Cardiff. Do you have to take a plane to get there? <laughs> no, it's uh, one of his friends is driving. You forget that in the UK... So from London to Cardiff is about it's about a three four hour drive. It's literally nothing. So, okay, so that's like for me, like I could get you could probably get get there bef- quicker than I can get to Vegas. Yeah, yeah, easily. It's literally like New York to Philadelphia, but closer. Like okay. it's nothing. Okay, let's keep the the comparisons to the West Coast. Okay. Sorry, yeah, I, I forget you're a, you're an LA boy. Okay, so um, anyway, unfortunately, or maybe fortunately. Unfortunately, it was to the AJ fight and not to the Dillian White fight because that would be a quicker drive for you, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah, ab- absolutely. Um, that's up at the uh, the O2, isn't it? The, the Dillian White fight, uh-huh. um, which is pr- pretty close. It is, don't worry. Um, but I would think I'd r- much rather go watch AJ Parker, some actual high-level heavyweights now, go why, fight. Why would you not want to go see this fight live? In fairness, this, you know, if I was doing nothing else, this would probably be okay. But these two are heavyweights who have not a huge amount of technique. They got okay power. Brown has okay power. White has pretty average power, to be honest. Maybe they'll slug it out. That's, I think, what you, the only thing you can hope for with this fight is they're just going to stand there. They kind of dislike each other, and you know they're going to throw, trying to outman each other. Does anybody like Dillian White? It's a fair no. question, I think. Yeah, I, I, some people like him. I think some people like... You know, he does a lot of interviews. People like IFL TV, he does a lot of interviews with them. No, I mean, like boxers. It seems like everyone who fights him, they just, they, they hate him. I think he's one of those people who gets under people's skin very easily. Um, you know, you saw with the Chisora fight, he was always having a go at Chisora. And you know, there was a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of scraps and stuff like that. And the build up to that one. I think he's one of those fighters who he talks a lot. Um, and he talks a lot on social media to people and he says some pretty controversial comments about people. And I think people just get a bit fed up with it. Okay. Um, who do you have winning this fight? I, I was thinking Dillian White is, is gonna, is gonna win it easily. And then recently I've what you know, watching Dillian's last couple of fights, he looks absolute trash. So I'm actually, I'm going to go against the Brit. I'm going to go with Lucas Brown on this one. Okay, so typically I would advise you to not do that. Like, I just <laughs> never think it's a good idea to go against your instinct. You watch the little videos, you watch 24-7, you watch Face Off or The Gloves Are Off and whatever you British people have and call it 24-7, it's a ripoff. Um, and then you start to doubt yourself. And very frequently, that's how you end up losing money, um, betting on stuff. Stick with your gut. Uh, Malcolm Gladwell, read his book. He'll tell you all about trusting your instinct or whatever because your brain works faster than you do i mean i did the exact same thing with uh 
with Estrada Rungvisai. I, I said for ages that Rungvisai was going to win the whole time. I was like, you know, I, I know he's got this. And then the last minute, I was like, oh, no, actually, I, I think Estrada's going to just outbox him easily. And, you know, I should have trusted my gut with that one. So, yeah, there's an argument that I should probably go back and, and support White. But there is a little part of me that kind of just wants him to get knocked out. So it might just be my own bias coming through again. Has he talked about you on an IFL video? Not yet. Maybe <laughs> after this podcast. Um, I, I, I just, first of all, Dillian White to me, um, I know everybody loved his fight with Derek Chisora. I thought that fight was awful. It was slow. There was some action, but there was also a lot of holding. The pace that, that they fought at was a snail pace. Um, and I thought he should have lost that fight against Derek Chisora. And that's another fighter I don't like. So um, that, to me, is just like kind of like, um, it uh, was just like, I, I, can't, I don't like Dillian White. I thought his success against Anthony Joshua is overblown. Mm. He caught Joshua with one punch throughout, what, seven rounds? And yeah. every other second of that fight, he looked he was dominated. Um, yeah. Landing one punch does not mean that you're you belong at any level close to a Joshua. Um, I mean, if we just do the tier conversation, what tier is Dillian White in? And I know heavyweight probably has the weirdest tier system because it's like, is Joshua in the same tier as Wilder? Who knows? And technically, Pavetkin <laughs> might be in a tier like the highest tier, but he's also not done anything. Uh, just. But I think we can just safely assume that Joshua Wilder, Povetkin, Ortiz, Parker are one tier or two or yeah. three. But so, and then we get to the next tier, and it's like, is Dillian White in that one? Well, do you rate do you rate Jared Miller as better than Dillian White? Um, I do. Okay, so then you put Jared Miller in that sort of second tier of heavyweights. But then I, the the trouble with heavyweight is. You get after about seven names, and then you're like, oh, there are literally no other fighters because heavyweight is bare as anything. So it's even difficult to do a tier system. The thing that annoys me most about Dillian White and that Joshua fight is he nearly got KO'd in the first. If you watch that fight, he is done in the first round, and he scrapes through it, throws after the bell, go goes at Joshua after the bell, probably should have been disqualified for it. Yes. And then gets absolutely tons of time to recover before landing one left hook and suddenly, you know, everyone's talking about him against Wilder. If Wilder hasn't hurt in that first round like Joshua did, there's no way White is is leaving the ring standing up. So it's just, I, it annoys me so much that he should have been KO'd realistically in the first round. And now he's his whole career is built on one left hook that he didn't even knock a guy out with. <laughs> let, let me ask you this question. Is... Dillian White better than Ajit Kabayel. Oh, you know, I would not want to watch that fight happen. I think that would be horrible. Yes. But Ajit Kabayel might actually beat him. If you don't know who we're talking about, Ajit Kabayel is uh, he's a 25-year-old heavyweight. I guess we can call him a prospect out of Germany. And he's the guy who most recently beat up Derek Chisora. And somehow it was a majority decision. It but, was a it was a Hearn card in Monte Carlo, and if you don't know those, those are the most rigged of all, because those cards are horrific. And yeah, he he outboxed Chisora handily, um, beat him up essentially over the entire fight, and just won the most razor thin majority decision you've ever seen. Um, but yeah, I actually would probably pick off that fight and how Chisora and White went. 
Cabahel beats White. Would Huey Fury beat White? Yeah. I dislike watching Huey Fury as well. I think he is a terrible boxer to watch. Um, you know, he has a jab and then that's it. But I think he probably would beat White. Yeah, I mean, I, I, the, the argument I'm making here is just that White is awful. And yeah, White is trash. Now, the question is, how bad is Lucas Brown? He's 38 I years think, old. I think he's pretty bad. He started boxing late. At he 29. Boxing at 29. He, you know, he was a bouncer. That that so, never tends to end well for boxers. No, that's but like, a, that's like an time, amateur career without headgear. Yeah, exactly. He stopped Shigaev who was old, but at the same time, no one had stopped Shigaev until Klitschko. Um, and Shigaev had fought other crap fighters like Valuev. The, the, only, the <laughs> problem he with David heavyweight Hay? is... Did he fight David Hay? No, he fought Povetkin. Shigaev fought Povetkin, yeah. The, the trouble with heavyweight is they're all so... Below the top level is a load of very crap people who it's really hard to try and pick who is more crap. And that's kind of what you have to do with Dillian White. Like, would Dillian White beat Brazil? I don't think so. Like Brazil is one of the like Brazil legitimately is like an enigma in boxing because first of all he has like a combination like it, it's almost like they built him and in, like they're building him in fight night and just randomize his stats. <laughs> so they gave him like a hundred for a chin, they gave him a hundred for heart, they gave his power decent, and then they forgot to do anything about defense, so it's just kind of like the default fifty rating. His hand speed is they they lowered that to about twenty. What are the other aspects of building a fighter? Like I mean, the guy is just weirdly built, and yet it works. Yeah. I mean, his fight with Ugono was ridiculous. That was a good heavyweight fight. That was better than White Chisora, which people oh, go on about. Absolutely. I mean, that was a fight from last year, and it was kind of one of those fights that got left out in the fight of the year conversations because that fight is absolutely wild, especially when you have a guy who was supposed to be done because he had just been knocked out by Anthony Joshua fighting a guy who was this monster of a prospect, and then they go to war. Um, then he, Brazil beats Eric Molina. I I, I think Brazil would beat uh, Dillian White pretty easily. Mm. Does uh, So I think Takam beats White as well. I think Takam's yes. underrated. I didn't understand this whole uh, AJ's exposed by not looking brilliant against Takam uh, in his last fight. Um, he hurt him a lot. He multiple times put him down. Things that Joseph Parker couldn't even dream of. I mean, the Joseph <laughs> Parker-Takam fight was dreadful. close as anything. And close. It was, a dreadful, it was a dreadful fight to watch. I'm glad it was on in the morning here. Otherwise, you know, it would have sent me straight off. And really, really close. And then AJ comes in and wins every round. And then people say, oh, you know, that fight exposed him. I don't think so. But I think Takam probably beats White. And let's not forget that Takam, he went 10 rounds before getting knocked out by roided up Povetkin. Yeah, exactly. I think that, like, um, that was the Povetkin. Povetkin on full roids was a monster. Yeah, that was a Povetkin. I think he had previously knocked out, um, who was it? He knocked him out in like the first or second round. It was Char. You just in the seventh round, just yeah, obliterated yeah, he absolutely him. sparked Char in the seventh. That's po yeah, it went. He lost to Klitschko, and then he destroyed Char and destroyed Takam. And then he his next fight, a one round knockout of Mike Perez. Yeah, it just prime roided out Povetkin, who will fight next week, and we'll talk all about him in his brilliant match with David Price. <laughs> I'll leave you guys uh, next week to discuss that gem. I I'm. I mean, we're just going to mention it. 
like yeah. who, who wants to talk about David Price? No one. No one needs that fight. Anyway, so this is. I. I mean, it's. If you strip away the 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 prediction of how this fight will actually play out as far as an entertainment um, wise goes, I think this is a really interesting fight. You know, you you have a lot of questions, and that's what mm-hmm. you want. The more questions going into a fight, I think the better the public perceives it. You think of um, fights like Golovkin versus Canelo. There's a ton of questions. There's so many variables. You think of Golovkin versus um, Billy Joe Saunders. Not as many questions. Not that many people interested in that fight. You think of Frank Bullioni versus Callum Johnson, which is on the undercard. Are there any questions about that fight? Uh, probably fewer than uh, Golovkin Canelo for some reason. I don't know why. But um, I think the only question is, does anyone care? A few people in England, I think. But no one really wanted this fight in England anyway. I mean, you've probably heard a couple of things occasionally on places like the discord of other british light heavyweights who are super overhyped and like frank Bilioni was like anthony yard you know he was supposed to be fighting frank Bilioni now but there was a classic promoter beef and nothing actually ever happened and both sides claim the other duck to them and that sort of thing but yeah callum johnson hasn't really done anything hasn't fought anyone of any note at all Frank Bellioni, we know what level he's at. He's a British level fighter, solid British level, but British level. He's never going for world honors. He's never going to win world honors. We know who he is. It'll be an all right fight. Who cares? Let me ask you this. What is Frank Bellioni's nickname? Is it the bad guy or the wise guy? What, Bellioni's? Bellioni's wise guy. Okay, just wanted to make sure. Just wanted to make sure you yeah, knew. Yeah. Okay, and then but- Lewis Ritson versus Scott Cardell. Um, did anybody know that Scott Cardell was actually a boxer, a professional boxer? <laughs> well, I think uh, Lewis Ritson's last opponent did after beating him for the British title somehow. Um, Scott Cardell is trained by Joe Gallagher, who, who does the Smith Brothers as well. And oh, he so has he must same... be an excellent trainer. Yeah, Wait, very, no, no, very no. good trainer. No, no, no. Is, don't, isn't his name Tesco Joe? It is Tesco Joe, yeah. Can that, you explain the Tesco Joe uh, thing? Um... He's just, uh, so for Americans listening, Tesco's a bit like Walmart is how I'd probably describe it. So if you called a trainer, you know, Walmart Frank or something, it wouldn't be looked upon as a great, a great thing for them. But yeah, I think Ritson is going to deal with Cardell pretty simply. Like Cardell is a classic British lightweight with absolutely zero power and not very good defense, which against someone like Ritson, who is actually seems to be an okay prospect, I don't think it's going to go well for him. Do you think Anthony Joshua really hurt Eddie Hearn and Matchroom? And I'm going to frame this question like this. So after the 2016 Olympics, Matchroom was at its peak because Eddie Hearn was actively in the mode of creating a star. And we saw so many British prospects get hyped. Callum Smith, Luke Campbell, mm. Anthony Joshua. And then you saw other um, prospects coming along like Scott Cardle, like your Sean Dodds and all these other guys. Uh, was it Thomas Stalker? Yeah, yeah, Tom Stalker. You, you saw all these guys headlining cards. You saw um, basically Eddie Hearn trying to generate and promote into existence a star. And then once we've seen, like he hit the money with Joshua, these matchup cards have mostly been, <clears throat> sorry. Well, they were always mismatches, but now there's no hype around them. There's no interest in these fights. Who cares about Callum Johnson? Who cares about Lewis Ritson? Mm, I think 
I think British boxing's at a very odd point at the moment because, you know, everyone's sort of, there's been a bit of hype the past few years of, you know, British boxing's coming back, you know, we've got world champions, all this sort of stuff. And a lot of that is to do with how popular Joshua is. But, you know, if you go into the street and say Anthony Joshua, a lot of people are going to say, oh, yeah, yeah. But if you even say a single name on his undercard, people aren't going to know who the hell you're talking about. So Eddie and and Frank, in a sense, both of them are at a bit of a tough point because people in Britain, you know, they they love Anthony Joshua and they love one or two sort of big stars. But then the interest can really drop off. And I think the only way that it's going to continue is if they can actually get more free and very good fights on cards. They need to get evenly matched, high, like high British level. I don't mean high world level. I mean high British level with evenly matched world title fights on the cards. Because if you just keep queuing up, oh, this fight has one competitive fight and 10 mismatches with prospects against people, people will tune in for a bit, but the hype very quickly dies if you're just seeing a guy beat up Polish plumbers again and again. Yeah, and I, I would say that, so the title for a while of like the best promoter in the game in terms of what they were accomplishing, not necessarily um, how good their fighters were, but in terms of the exposure their fighters were getting and, um, and, and attention, and it was clearly Eddie Hearn for a while. And I think that the, at least momentarily, the title has jumped onto Bob Arum because these mm-hmm. ESPN cards say what you want about how good these fighters actually are. And um, and whatever else can come along with that, but I think he's doing a really good job. Uh, top Rank's doing a really good job with these top rank cards. They're getting the right amount of hype. They're getting the right amount of um, uh, exaggeration as far as how good the fighters are. And I think mm-hmm. it's, it's, it, they've done a really good job. Yeah, I think Eddie might be a victim of his own point where he always tries to make people sort of get paid more than perhaps they should which is fair enough from a promoter he gets a percentage of that you have to remember but he it ends up with people like anthony crawler for example or ricky burns they get paid a lot they got a lot of money for their recent fight um and that means that your undercard is total crap i mean it's literally just five prospects against five nobodies and then for a main event that really isn't very good that really kills a lot of buzz around it yep well, um, well, we'll leave it here. We'll be back to discuss this British card next week as well as whatever other news that we've got coming up. So, um, my man, Paul. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. Yep, it's been nice. I, I, I hope people want to hear, hear you back, but if they don't, well, then this is your one and only appearance. But I don't think so. I think you did a really good job. Uh, I'm, oh, well, I'm very, very proud much. of you. Um, maybe we'll start a political podcast just for you to get um, your political takes out there. Oh, I don't know if I'm don't know if I'm brave enough for that one. <laughs> and um, for those of you listening, I want to encourage you guys head over to the survey, and that's going to be in the podcast description. We have a survey. Fill that out. Let us know what you want to hear. Let us know some information. Ten questions. Again, it will take you a minute if you don't do the text box portion, but it'll take maybe two or three minutes if you if you actually take it serious and try to fill it out. And then also head over to our Patreon page, daily podcast, brand new podcast launching, and then another one coming out. We're just going to overload you guys with, um, I guess, content, and we'll see what sticks to the wall. We're going to do basically that PBC thing, and maybe we'll crash and burn before finally figuring it out three years too late. I don't know. Well, thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week.
packing, I be packing like I'm moved. The ones that like to sit around will be the ones to try to do you. So I keep up my spurs shot it with a kick like Jen Kazuya. Keep my trapping on the low, cause it ain't everybody business. I got 25 of life inside them cabinets in my kitchen. 100 pounds in the trash bag, Maxo do the dishes. 100 rounds in the air mag, I can't leave no witness. Got cameras in the front, got cameras in the back, got cameras across the street in the old category.